I read somewhere, um, I don't know who I'm stealing this off of, but programming languages and frameworks are kind of like board games in that you can read the rules over and over again and you'll never really grok it until you try to implement it. There's a saying that the map is not the territory. Like you can you can study something or, or you know, see a map of somewhere, but until you're until you're there, until you're in like the thing you're trying to learn, you're not going to actually know it. Right. That's interesting. I like that analogy. I've definitely suffered from that. Just trying to like read up on something and not actually do it. Yeah, or just think of an idea but say it's gonna be in closure, like just read all about closure and then never actually get to building something and nothing significant retains. Javon, you and I have been learning closure kind of together. Yeah, and it's been good because we can piggyback off each other, and you also have a project started, so we worked on that. Yeah, I decided that I wanted to learn. I've been playing around with a whole bunch of programming languages for almost a year now, probably five or ten different ones that I've at least touched, but I've never actually dove into any of them, uh, aside from like very small test things. So I decided that the ne- next web project I make, I'm going to make in Clojure, and the next CLI project I make, I'm going to make in Go. And then, I don't know if I'll stick with either of them, but at least I'll have, you know, an end-to-end experience with with the languages. So what are you writing in Clojure? It's a very simple uh, website. It takes a, it takes a, re- uh, a request and, and finds a random article from Wikipedia or a random item from like Amazon or a bunch of other things. I don't want to go too into detail, into detail into what it actually is, but just a simple website that that finds things. So I've been thinking a lot about like how do I structure the code in a functional way? Like how do I swap these different backends out? How do I render HTML from Clojure? How do I deploy this thing? How do I how do I write tests in Clojure? How do I stub things? Uh, these are all things I don't know yet, but I am learning. It's nice to be a beginner again and not know what I'm doing. Do you think the, like, the whole beginner thing about jumping around it seems easy when you're a beginner? Like, how do you stick to? How do you stick it out? Because it's it's always awesome when it's starting out; it's easy. But then when it gets a little tougher, people tend to bail. Yeah, I think there's a linear progression on skill. Uh, like you, you, you do something, you practice it, you learn it, and along the way, different light bulbs go off. Like, oh, like that's how that should be done, or that makes sense now. And I think so. I want to talk about this during the episode. So I'm glad it came up. There's an article called "How Developers Stop Learning: The Rise of the Expert Beginner." What this article talks about is you. There's a chart in the in the article that you go from novice to advanced beginner to competent to proficient to expert. And I think you move literally along that way, but at some point you could think you know more than you know and just stop learning. And this article labels that as being an expert beginner. Like you take the bare minimum to to get done what you need to get done, and then you, I guess, hubris maybe is the word. Uh, you think that you're doing it the right way, and, and you you kind of close up the ability to continue learning. Has anybody else read that article? I'm I mean, not, but I've talked to people more senior to me about it. Just about the stages and how not to, not to think you know too much. It reminds me of my favorite guilty reality TV show, Pleasure, which is uh, America's Got Talent. The first few episodes of every season where they'll have 
you know, people who are really, really bad and people who are really, really good. And often the people who are really bad are the most confident because they're just really clueless into like how much they don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And the people who are amazing are really humble because they know how much, you know, how much they don't know and how much better they could be. But then they get on stage and they just blow everybody away. Is this the Dreyfus model or... I think that has a name of like, you don't know what you don't know, and then you know what you don't know. Yeah, I think that's the Dreyfus model. If it's not, I'll just cut this whole part out. (laughs) Yeah, and like a a similar uh, visual that I've thought of instead of just like linearly and then getting stuck, but um, I've seen it laid out like a beginner or novice sees like a bunch of dots on a white background. And so if you're learning a programming language, if you're learning a new skill, you just, you see all the things, but an expert sees how the things connect. Uh, they see like lines between them. They, they, they just intuitively know what to do and what not to do. So what do you do to stop, uh, getting stuck in the trap of being an expert beginner? Maybe keep an open mind. Don't, uh, don't get cocky. I think it helps to, I think the idea of like staying a beginner is probably something useful and I mean that in that like when you talked about how you're learning closure now like that we're I mean among most of us chatting here I believe we're generally trying to learn a new thing all the time so we kind of always keep that beginner's mindset because we're always a beginner at something yeah I think that like having hubris is the only path to to being shamed like if you're if you're really cocky and you fail you feel shamed and you look like I don't know bad and if you're if you're curious and you fail then like oh well like you just try again and and there's no there's no hard feelings and then either one of those if you succeed then then you feel really good so i I think that cockiness and hubris is the only way to feel bad when you're learning something so pam what are you learning these days so I, the last thing I've been learning was I did, I'm actually doing a good number of business things because I find business really interesting. So that's actually one, the thing that I'm spending more time on. Uh, program wise, programming wise, I'm trying to do functional. Uh, I think it's, it's kind of been on the list for a long time and I've always kind of heard everywhere that it's once you once you start to be learn a functional programming languages it changes how you think about programming and before that idea kind of bothered me because I was like I'm not really good enough to like kind of shake everything up yet um, but now I think I I'm interested in into digging into especially because people are doing functional programming in JavaScript so I want to go uh, play in Scala I'm actually evaluating about going to Scala meetup this week to to go and check out they have a beginner's thing that i want to check out so that's that's what's on my plate that awesome. so should be a lot of fun oh and probably getting uh actually digging into node since i've used node but i have i don't definitely am not uh because i think we're going to hopefully have a node school in philadelphia next month so oh, nice so kind of a prerequisite for that would be me doing the curriculum so that i could you know help out with the projects. That's pretty sweet. How's yeah. that coming along? Ah, uh, well, I'll let you know next week. <laughs> so I think, like, one important thing to remember for me is, like, everything that we all know now, like, we had to learn at some point. Like, the the first step to being good at something is 
you know, being really bad at something when you first start out. So I think it's easy for, for me at least to forget, like with Ruby, I feel pretty confident and comfortable with Ruby. But at some point, like I didn't know Ruby at all. Like I looked at the syntax and coming from PHP, it was not familiar to me. Or, or you could take this for anything, like learning, learning Vim. Like I was completely lost in Vim. I didn't know how to exit. I didn't know how to get out of the editor. Uh, I didn't know how to go into insert mode. Uh, and now I feel pretty, pretty comfortable in Vim. I, I would always like to get better at Vim and master Vim foo. But I guess it's, I don't know if it's something you ever master. I was pretty good about, uh, just Vim is one of those ones where I feel like you just, say, I shall not use anything else, and therefore I shall have to get good at it. Yeah, I think that's uh, what I did. Yeah, that's. I think that's what I've heard from anyone generally, and they say, like, I did it for, like, a year, and then and then I was pretty good. I think I'm still pretty bad at it, but force myself think, to do it. I within... feel like everyone who uses Vim thinks that, though. Yeah, but, but I, I think... Because that... you go and you see someone else who has, like, a cool trick, but you have cool tricks, too. That's true. But even even learning at the beginning, within a week or two, I was already much faster than uh, a GUI editor. So it didn't take very long for me to be hooked and, and realize that I was faster in Vim than anywhere else. I always tell people, if they're trying to learn Vim, just use MacVim if they're on OSX. Um, yeah, MacVim, and uh, there's a package from Yehuda Cats called Janus, J-A-N-U-S. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a collection. So a lot of people customize their Vim configuration with uh, like file finders and ways to comment lines really quickly. So Janus has a lot of built-in. It's basically like a set of best practices for plugins that you can just drop in and go with. And then as you learn Vim more, you can create your own config. Yeah, vanilla Vim is nearly unusable even for people who know Vim inside out. There's some pretty awful defaults. I kind of wish somebody at a team I'm on would really be like uh, gung ho about Emacs because I've heard that I've heard that Emacs is a very good editor and I'd like somebody that is uh, I don't want to switch from Vim but I would appreciate uh, diversity in editor choice. So when I switched to Vim, I was coming from Visual Studio, which I thought I knew inside out. I had so many key bindings memorized, like I would be doing crazy chords of like. Control Alt Shift and a, and a button, uh, and it was really depressing when I was leaving .NET to like have wasted all of that muscle memory. And one of the things I love about Vim is that you know it's been around for twenty years, and I'm hoping it'll be around for twenty more. So I don't I don't want to learn another editor. Have, have any of you seen the the new Vim projects? There's like a new Vim. Vim, and I think there's another one too. They're trying to basically like reboot the Vim code base because, like as you said, it's you know, very old uh, and probably has a lot of cruft in it and maybe some features that are not used anymore. <clears throat> yeah, NeoVim has a lot of momentum to even have a newsletter. I'm interested in it, but I don't think I'm going to pay attention to it until it, they have a release that is stable for me to use. Len, what are you learning these days? So I actually just started playing around with Swift. I think I mentioned last week or the week before that I always wanted to do OS ten development and I don't know, Objective-C just seems a little too intimidating. I'm pretty excited to get in, in a language that's kind of on the ground floor. And speaking of continuous learning, uh, I saw over the weekend Ron Jeffries. He's one of the three founders of Extreme Programming. Um, and according to Wikipedia, he is 75 years old. 
and I saw him tweeting this weekend about learning Swift and the different ways he was trying to solve a problem for calculating bowling scores. Uh, that was just really inspiring to me to see that, you know, he's been around for so long and is still, you know, interested in new things and still taking the time to learn them. How far have you gotten with uh, Swift, Len? Not that far. <laughs> um, I was just kind of typing along in the in the playgrounds and uh, following along with the the book that Apple released. How is the playground? It's not perfect. It's a little buggy sometimes. Sometimes it takes a couple seconds for the code you write to to kind of be reflected in the little pane. But overall, I think I like it. But I'm not sure. I wouldn't just rather a plain old REPL. Mm. So I had one question about continuous learning. Like, aside from us as individuals, you know, we put a lot of effort and our free time into learning, and we probably, you know, drive a little bit at work too. How can how can an organization foster continuous learning for the employees or or itself as an organization? So something I've never really ever heard a company explicitly say. Well, actually, uh, no, I have done this once. Um, but that, so there's all these great online, uh, products like Pluralsight or, you know, Linda, where you have these courses and videos and such. And I think there's a good number of companies that offer that as a benefit, but they don't explicitly say, Hey, I've offered this as a benefit. Therefore, it is okay for you to use it during your daytime. Uh, I would be happy to see more of that. In Philadelphia, you can use Treehouse for free. So Treehouse is another one of those. You can use Treehouse for free through the Philadelphia Public Library. There is no reason that you shouldn't use Treehouse at work because there's always downtime. Like when it's, you know, I'm, you know, honestly, sometimes I end up because I have, you know, a, a... my my CI server, I need to make some work to make it go a little faster. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so sometimes I actually, you know, in web development, we were lucky enough to not usually have like, ah, compile time. Let's go do something else for 20 minutes. But I mean, sometimes when I am like my, when my only to do's are build and deploy, build and deploy, uh, you know, to, to see how things look in an environment, I end up with some downtime. And the, that downtime is... Uh, prodigiously used by watching, you know, uh, a video or catching up on my Coursera course or things like that, that the time during your workday is a good time to do continuous learning. Apologies, I, I didn't mean to, to get on my soapbox. No, but, no, uh, that was great. But since you did say, since you did say the, the phrase about, you know, we use our, our free time, then, you know, that's very much true. But I'm also, you know, I have this this kind of thing where I have many, I have conflicting feelings about how, how we use our free time to, to excel at our career uh, when you should be able to excel at your career during the time allotted to your career. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was getting at. Like a lot of companies have, like Google's famous sort of 20% time that allows you to work on anything you want 20% of your time and I think it's supposed to be related to, you know, your your job. I don't yeah, know. I think I don't really like that policy. I think it's I think it's a Trojan horse. I very rarely see that be useful stuff. Um and I know Thoughtbot, they um they charge clients by week. 
and yeah, I mean expected, agencies that do that. Mm-hmm. Well, just, but they're expected to work Monday through Thursday, nine to five, and that is a thirty-two uh. hour week. And then on Fridays, they can work on other things. They could like teach themselves a new programming language. They could work on a blog post. They could do whatever. They could organize some kind of training. Have you guys seen any other examples of a company you know offering that allotted time to to improve? I've just seen really bad patterns by not having that. Uh, uh, I've seen multiple times where, particularly in Backbone, I always suggest people watch the Backbone Rails videos from front to finish because <laughs> they're amazing and they will um, teach you kind of how to use, how to create uh, modern web apps in, in Backbone and Marionette. Uh, but you know, people think that taking the time to learn something is going to slow them down. So they just dive right in. They build a backbone app, and just within months, it becomes just an unmaintainable mess of spaghetti. And every story is probably three to four times longer than it needed to be because um, they didn't spend the upfront time to to learn how to build like a, a modern web application in Backbone. And they thought are they you, could just take a shortcut. Are you talking about me, Len? I'm not talking about you. <laughs> I'm so uh, backbone naive. So do you think that company should make it okay to invest time in the thing you're about to build or experiment with? I think I think it always uh, you know, comes back multiple times to spend more time learning things. You can be multiple times more productive uh, if you know something well. I think that's you know a math that companies don't do. I mean, that's, that's actually an interesting point about, uh, like, how would you quantify? I mean, I, I obviously don't have an answer to this, but I, I find that to be an interesting problem of, you know, when you can actually do quantitative analysis and say, actually, this person is worth more to you when, when you've invested in them or when you've allowed them the time to invest in themselves. You know, I also, I think this is also an interesting thing about, so with incentives at play with, say, with an employer investing in employees, if you have that, there, I read a, uh, there was a, a New York Times article yesterday about how non-competes are being co- a lot more common in other, in, you know, industries that are uncommon too. So you have like a hairstylist who has a non-compete that says, you know, after you quit this hair salon, you can't work at any hair salon in the same town. Wow. And stuff like that. And one of the, the points about from the employer side is the kind of this, this fear that employers have about investing in their employees. And I, I thought that was kind of interesting. And I thought, you know, they're, cause in terms of, you know, the incentives, an employee, you know, in there, there's a saying that, you know, a, that, the article mentioned in the Valley that you never stop hiring someone that, you know, in, in a environment where people are free to move, uh, you, a company has to, that, you know, they have to be good. And you kind of see that with the kind of perks we get in, in software engineering, you know, where we, we expect a lot of our, our employer because at any given time we could change and, you know, go to a different employer. It is not hard. So it is an interesting idea because it's like this, you know, I feel like the, the historical context is back in the day uh, in, say, the 60s, there was this kind of cultural idea that a business was supposed to take care of its employees 
and then that that started to degrade over time and you know and less and less and you know you get you know people know what massive layoffs look like and that you know even if you work for your company for 40 years you know in manufacturing they at the end of the day they owe you nothing uh there is no you know is they aren't your mom like and you know even your mom doesn't really owe you anything <laughs> but you know they they're a business and you're an employee and so almost like continuous learning and competition is the way for the employee to protect themselves you know from perhaps an employer that doesn't you know the employer the employer's business is not to make employees happy and the employer's business is to stay in business so what incentive does like a big corporate java shop have to let their employees learn ruby because well, the so chances are they'll, they'll learn ruby and and be free to hop to like any job but anywhere. that's but that's the thing is that's what they're afraid of but inevitably that's the that's the the tricky thing of like how do you actually show that you know, when whenever there's like some action out of fear, you know, in general, I think it ends up kind of backfiring on yeah. on you. Just like in the general sense, like if you're like, oh, I'm not gonna, you know, I I am not going to take this action, and the only reason I'm not going to take it is because I'm afraid. You know, that's that's kind of a good way to like. So, like I had a friend who said they worked at a they worked at a large enterprise software company, and they actually. They, they were pretty unhappy. Like they, they had a really closed culture. Um, and one of the things they actually did among the engineers, they, they started a chat room that was just the engineers so that they could like kvetch about being engineers at this large enterprise software company. And then the company found out and they shut it down. So instead of the company responding and saying, Oh, you know, obviously there's a problem in, that we aren't addressing. You don't feel like you can talk to us about the problems. Um, you know, let's, let's have a, dis a dialogue about this. They actually said, Oh no, we're afraid of you organizing. And, you know, kind of the, almost like the anti-union sentiment that like when, when people, people are stronger together. Again, with the soapbox, I apologize, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, I like people people forget that they're you know they're powerful and that they can you know you choose to be in whatever situation you choose to be in in general in you know in the kind of situations we are in and if you remain in a situation that you are unhappy with the only person whose fault it is is you so I like to say when someone's complaining about their job I say fix it or leave because those are those are the two options you have. There is not complain about it. That is not an option. <laughs> so I've heard that I've heard that rephrased as change your job or change your job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So there's a uh, there's a famous quote or story or whatever that uh, uh, a CFO asks the CEO like, "What happens if we train our people and they leave?" And the CEO asks the financial guy, "What happens if we don't and they stay?" Yeah, that's another good one. I mean, that's that's why your enterprise Java shop trains their people in Ruby, and encourages them to encourages them to explore, like to. Because remember, we talked about how like just you know learning Ruby doesn't necessarily mean you become a Ruby developer. I have no designs on becoming a Scala developer, but it's on my list to learn Scala to to stretch my skills. I think actually, I mean, I know you're just you know picking an example for that, but I mean. 
Java developers in particular are learning Ruby uh, or, you know, learning, say, learning Scala is a really, really useful thing because you have actually tools that play really well together. And so it really does make a Java stack stronger to explore Scala or explore Ruby. Yeah, and I think that, like, um, like in our consultancy, that's why a few of us are learning closures. I don't know if closure is going to be the next thing for our consultancy, but, like, Ruby is not going to be the thing forever. It, it is right now, and it could be for 5, 10, or 20 years, but at some point, uh, you know, the industry will shift and there will be something else in higher demand than Ruby. I think for any any technical company, it, it is important to, you know, kind of hedge your bets and, and see what else is out there and, and ensure that your employees are and, and your people are open to learn new things and, and able to able to adapt to change. So Justin, you mentioned that you do all these side projects and that's kind of a lot of extra work, but something I found harder being a freelancer, uh, expanding my skills is just getting more time to play around in new technologies. Uh, when I was an employee, I'd be able to to sell a project and say, oh, I think we should do this in Rails and I'll be terrible at Rails. But I think over the long term, you know, as a company, getting this knowledge and uh, getting the skill will, will benefit us. As a freelancer, I can't just say, oh, I want to build you this product in a language I'll be really terrible at. And I find it harder to expand in, in more directions uh, as a consultant. Uh the onus is still on you to, you know, further your craft. So you can offer an I am bad at this language discount. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you're, yeah. Like, like, so f for instance, like I, I never actually went through with this, but I was potentially going to uh, consult for a closure company last year. And my Ruby rate was much different from my closure rate. My Ruby rate was, uh, higher and I offered a substantial discount because I'm not familiar with closure and I'd be learning on the job. And this company in particular paired, so I think it would be a very uh, easy, easy transition uh, in, in learning. But yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think it's a good thing to, you know, you're, you're managing risk. Like if um, there are trade-offs, so maybe if you were getting to, to learn something new, maybe you won't make as much for, for that short project. I don't know. Um, related to that, there was an article uh, a few days ago called The Haskell Tax and Why Developers Can't Make Money, which is kind of ironic. Um, but it talked about how specializing in a certain you know, type of software that's more fringe, such as, you know, Haskell or Erlang or maybe even Clojure, sometimes an employer could use that against you. Like, you get to use Haskell, so I don't have to pay you as much. And, that, and there are more people that want to use Haskell than people that want to pay people to use Haskell. So using a more mainstream language like Java or C Sharp or Ruby, you're likely to make more money even though they're more common and... Um, there's just more work there. I guess it's an issue of supply and demand. Uh, even if that Haskell developer is more productive or able to, you know, deliver more value to the company, it's it's more of an issue of the, the trade-off of, of being able to learn something new versus being paid for it. So my takeaway is that 
a company should always build their software in a cutting edge language to get the best people for the cheapest prices. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what the article is kind of uh, hinting at, and that how that's a that's a problem. I don't have any sympathy for this problem. This is just like the free market. Like like Node's an example, right? Um, I I see a lot of projects that are built in Node because people like if you if you took a Java developer that was to build the same project they would, you know, probably quote you a higher amount and it would maybe take the same amount of time. It might be more stable, um, but because somebody else wants to use Node and try it out on this project, they might be able to, and maybe just JavaScript is a lower paying language, I don't know. They might be able to, to find work for much cheaper because somebody wants to use Node on this project. Cool, so do you guys want to do picks? I'm, I'm going to punt to next week. <laughs> So I just spent a, a long weekend chilling out. That could be your pick. Spend the weekend <laughs> chilling out. Long weekends. Pro summer. Justin, do you have any picks? Uh, sure. So RSpec 3 came out. My pick, my pick is not RSpec 3, although we're all yeah. going to be using it shortly, so might as well upgrade. Um, yeah. my, my pick is called Transpec. Uh, it is a gem you install with gem install Transpec, T-R-A-N-S-P. EC, and it will transform your RSpec2 syntax specs into RSpec3 syntax. So instead of you know trudging through a project and you know writing Vim macros to change stuff, you just run this transpec command, and it will make all of your stuff work on RSpec3. Awesome, Javon, do you have a pick? Uh, I think I'm going to pick Strange Loop. Uh, I got a diversity scholarship to go to Strange Loop. I think that's pretty awesome. Um, Congratulations! Thank you. Yeah, and I think I think those app are those applications still open. Yeah, I thought you were so going to apply, Pam. Hey, shh, sh- <laughs> maybe. Um, but yeah, we could put that link in the show notes. So my pick is related to our topic. Uh, talent is overrated. Uh, what separates a world class performers from everybody else, and uh, the author talks about how world-class performers just across the board didn't tend to have 10,000 hours of practice, which is, I think, something that, that is getting more and more known. Uh, but he also defines a kind of a specific type of practice as deliberate practice. And uh, I think it relates to uh, our ability to self-learn in programming because part of deliberate practice is doing something just a little more difficult than you're ready to handle and having some sort of immediate feedback. And if you can set up um, a deliberate practice, you'll tend to excel much quicker. Uh, so I think it's just a good thing to keep in mind when you're trying to get better, to try to set up a, a situation where you're doing deliberate practice. And yeah, that's it. Uh, talent is overrated. <laughs> so I think that wraps it up. Uh, show notes are at turing.cool slash five. And I'll uh, talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at (laughs) TuringCool. Yes. Follow us on Twitter.